0: Normally, I take at least three weeks to get a sermon ready. So, uh, this week I had three days getting back uh, from Florida. So, uh, I pulled out some old files. I've been preaching along and I preached just about every text. So, I'd preached out of this Ephesians text back in 1988. How many of you were not alive in 1988? Yeah, that's what I was afraid of. Oh, boy. Lost them already. But, not. This is not a 1988 sermon, it is, it is today. But I wanted to share some things from that. I thought was kind of uh, interesting. I, I, I had two sets of articles I used in this sermon. The first set included a Jack Anderson editorial. Some of you remember that name. It says, U.S. Soviet youth may meet in space despite all the controversy and consternation about Star Wars. Remember that, Reagan? The key to peace on earth may be found in space. America's young astronauts and Russia's young cosmonauts may join forces to promote peaceful exploration of the universe. And then I mentioned how the programs from both countries were uh, to enhance peace. Then another article, a sociology professor says, it is possible another Gandhi could emerge in the nuclear age to bring peace. This is 1988. And they said the world was ripe for a peacemaker. Another item, giant peace march held in Moscow to, promote, to protest the arms race. And then another letter to the editor Prayer is the key to peace. So there was a lot of talk about peace in 1988, and I don't think things have changed a lot. We still desire it. There's something in us that wants peace. We know that not peace is not a good thing. But then there was a second set of articles with a little different tone. Military spending soars, and it gave the numbers, uh, and the world now spends two and a half times more on military than in 1960. Now this is 1988 two and a half more times in 1960. Another reports that there were 22 wars going on in 1987, and 80% of the victims are civilian. Another editorial said, Should we change our country's model from in God we trust to in military we trust? And that came from a Gallup poll where people have more confidence in the military than they do in the church. Several disquieting factors point to this apparent tread towards militarism, a belief that the military is the principal answer to life's problems. And I thought... I don't think that's changed a whole lot in 31 years. We want peace. We talk about peace. Politicians talk about it. we, we, We desire it, but we don't have it. Aspiration and reality are miles apart when it comes to peace. Well, our text is Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Let me give you a summary up front about it. There's three parts. Part one, into this divided world, Leads to part two, Jesus Christ has come to bring peace. And then part three verses, the last three verses, he brought the church into being to demonstrate that peace to the world. So the message of this text is the only way to peace is through Christ's work in the church. And the particular situation Paul is talking about is the Jew-Gentile division, and it was a hostile division. So let's follow his train of thought as we walk through this passage. Verse 11, Therefore remember that, you, that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. He's talking to Gentiles and he tells them to remember. In fact, twice he says, Remember. Don't forget, you recall your former condition. You who are Gentiles by birth, in other words, they were non-Jews. Jews were God's people. Gentiles were not God's people. They were pagans and outsiders. And one of the big changes Jesus brought is that Gentiles are now included into this covenant relationship with God. By the way, that's all of us. I think we're all Gentiles here. And he says, you Gentiles, you were uncircumcised, which by the way was a negative name. He's basically calling him names. Uh, it was a name of contempt. You uncircumcised—that's what the Jews would say about the kind of you scumbag, you you garbage, you know. And it really, I started thinking, okay, what's the big division today? Patriots and Rams? No, no, that's not. I, I I just can't help but to think of Trump haters and Trump lovers. They hate each other. There's no way around it. Or conservatives, liberals, you want to broaden a little bit. They call each other names, you homophobes, you radicals, you liberals, you whatever. And here's the crazy thing back then the word circumcision was actually a positive, it was a mark of belonging to God and a positive sign, but it had become a wall, a fence. Israel was chosen by God so the barriers could be broken down, but circumcision actually ended up contributing to the division and became a barrier. Israel forgot their vocation to be a blessing to the nations, and they actually became hostile to the nations. Some churches do that, by the way. They become the opposite of what God intended. And verse 12 Paul lists five ways the Gentiles are in a negative situation before Christ. They're separated from him, of course. They're excluded from citizenship. In verse 19, they're foreigners. Foreigners back then were subject to abuse, sometimes treated as spies or outlaws. Uh, They were not in covenant with God. They were without hope and without God in the world. They were, in other words, Christless, homeless, friendless, hopeless, godless. That was the life of a Gentile without Jesus. And a consistent characteristic of a Christless life is hostility and division. Humanity and societies talk about peace. We want peace. We aspire to reconciliation and strive for it. But without the supernatural work of Christ, peace is not attainable. I watch Fox News. I'll admit it. I like watching the news, actually. I also watch CNN. And you know, any of you who watch the news, those are two completely different worlds. Those are two completely different interpretations of what's going on in the world today. And when I watch those, there is no unity in the United States. We should be called the divided states of America. And most people recognize it. And most people are disturbed by it. I know most of you are disturbed by that. And Paul says to these Jews and Gentiles, that's what you once were. You used to have this animosity. You used to be miles apart. And Christ came and brought you two together. And and to imagine that Gentiles and Jews were actually worshiping together in the same place was was almost miraculous. He's talking, this is your condition before Christ. It's kind of like conservatives saying, you liberals have no clue. You don't get it. And the liberals saying, the conservatives, you you have no clue. You don't get it. And the Jew-Gentile division was just as stark and probably actually worse. Two weeks ago, I talked about the divine conjunction. Divine is God. Conjunction. Know your grammar here. The word but is a conjunction. But God. Okay, we got all this division going on, all this. But God, here the divine conjunction, that but now But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, you Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. I don't think we get how radical this is from back then. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near, both Jew and Gentile, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. So, part one is the description of the divisive nature that was going on back then. There were deep divides between Jew and Gentile, no way to span the gulf. But now, in part two, because of the work of Christ, the two have been brought together and there's reconciliation. Not through social reform, not through a space program, not through integration laws, but through a brand new creation. The peace Christ brings is not just an individual peace either that we think about, it's a social relational peace with one another. And there's two ways this peace comes about, destruction and construction. Destroying the barriers is the destruction. He broke down the dividing walls of hostility, he abolished the law, by the way the law was not evil. It was good, like circumcisions, but its misuse had become a dividing wall. This may also be a reference to a literal wall. By by the way, isn't it amazing how wall has divided this nation? But anyway, there was a wall outside the temple at this time, according to Josephus, a five-foot stone barricade with a written notice that in essence said, trespassers will be executed. Paul was almost lynched when he was accused of taking a Gentile beyond that wall, into the temple. So the law, circumcision, and the temple, all were intended to be a blessing to the Gentiles, ended up alienating them. And Christ has broken those barriers down. He cleared the way so that peace could now come. So one step one was destruction, and then the second is construction. In verse 15, his purpose was to create or construct one new humanity out of two. Constructing a new humanity. The great mistake, naivety—I may have put it that way—that people make in our society. If we just change social structures, we can have peace. If we just change the laws, we can create unity. If we get people have enough peer pressure, we can get people to be united. No. See, the problem is laws and structures and peer pressure cannot change the hearts and souls of people. But the miracle of Christ allows a new social reality because he creates a new humanity and the new humanity he talks about here is the church, it's us. He's the head, we're the body. Now can you imagine conservatives and liberals today living at peace? I see no hope. But, but the divine conjunction If we were all in Christ, wouldn't it be possible? I mean, if we were really in Christ, not just in name and nominal, you know. People say, yeah, yeah, if everybody was in Christ, they'd see it my way. Then you really aren't in Christ, okay? Because you'd see a whole new way. I have two brothers that are Democrats, and I have two brothers that are Republicans. We have interesting family get-togethers. They disagree. I disagree. But we still get together. We're still family because our ties are deeper than politics. We still love each other, and so should the church. This should be a place that transcends these divisions, the place of peace and relational health. Jew and Gentile can get along. Folks, if they can get along back then, then we should be able to get along today, conservative, liberal, male, female, whatever division you want to talk about, as an example and as a model to the world. Someone once said, if you want a good litmus test of your spiritual growth, simply examine the nature and quality of your relationships with others. And I think that's good for the church and good for us as individuals. Are you more loving than you were a year ago? Are you more compassionate? Are you of a reconciler? Are you more patient, more understanding, more giving, more forgiving than you were a year ago? If you cannot say yes, then maybe you need to examine your own spiritual growth and walk with Christ. If Christ is in you, and if Christ is in this church, it will affect relationships. If Christ is in us, we'll be more grateful. And if every relationship has a platform of gratitude, it will be better. Even strained relationships will be better because we'll have a different perspective out of gratitude. And I know it's easy to talk about loving one another. and Well, how about loving someone that has crossed you? How are you going to relate to them? How is Christ going to work in that in you? Have you forgiven someone you need to forgive? I think the four-letter word today that is a swear word in our culture is the word, H-A-T-E, hate. And we know we should not hate. But it seems to me like the more we talk about how we should not hate, we hate more. That seem a little odd to you? And I think we all have to admit, we all have elements of hate in us. We all have some prejudice. I mean, there's a lot of denial going on if you don't. And people say, well, I don't hate him, or I don't hate them. Well, by your words and actions, it looks like it. So, what are the implications for the church? We should be a place of reconciliation, where it can happen, a place of unity. It's not going to be perfect, not in this life, but it can still be real. Barton W. Stone was one of our movement's forefathers, and he talked about the different kinds of unity. Uh, There's creed unity, where different churches or denominations unite under a creed. There's head unity, and he said that's unity based on opinion. You know, we agree on things opinion-wise. There's water unity based on baptism. For some, it's immersion. For others, it's infant sprinkling. And Stone, Stone said none of those bring biblical unity. He said, how vain are all attempts to unite a bundle of twigs together so as to make them grow together and bear fruit. Well, I saw that by Martin W. so I got some twigs uh, together. I got these from Julie's flower shop. Now, she does a lot better than this, but uh, these are just leftovers I pulled out of her garbage. Anyway, uh, <laughs> this is from her too. Anyway, anyway, uh, are these twigs united? They're tied together. They're together, but they're, they're still separate. There's no unifying thing that they're, they're uh, feeding off of. Stone goes on, said, They must first be united with the living stock and receive its sap and spirit before they can ever be united with one another. So I got this plant from Julie. Now it actually has two plants in here. But uh, now, are these branches united? Yeah. Yeah. They all come from one common source. And stone talks about, and Jesus talked about the vine, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And our unity with one another actually comes with our unity and our connection to Christ. So the twigs, I think, represents the world trying to have unity. But it can't, because there's no common source. It's an outwardly forced unity by laws or social pressure or structures or whatever, But the plant has real unity. Stone says, "...the members of the body cannot live unless by union with the head. Nor can the members of the church live united unless first united with Christ, the living head. His spirit is the bond of union. Men have devised many plans to unity. All are vain. There is one effectual plan, which is that all be united with Christ and walk in Him." So the only way for peace to be realized is through union with Christ." Really, the only place racial prejudice can be eliminated is union with Christ, where the branches are connected to the vine. The only place where healing of relationships can occur is submitting ourselves to the feet of Jesus. His spirit gains control of your lives. You know, at one time, I thought racial unity had actually not been conquered, but at least waned. Rachel disunity, I mean. It seems like it's gotten worse. It seems like it's worse now than it was in the 60s. In the church, there has to be this sense of community. That's why we do groups, Sunday school classes, dinners together, worship together. We study the word together so we can live out that unity as a body. We should have unity with other churches. I pray for other churches in this town because we're on the same side. Now, Pastor Busher over at Zion is the only other full-time minister besides what we have here, and he is a great guy. He's better than I am. And he's raising five boys. Can you imagine that? When Sarah was pregnant with their fifth, I told Jonathan, I'm praying for your fifth to be a boy because I grew up in a family of five boys. I'm not sure he appreciated that. (laughs) So we have this commonality, a family with five boys, but that's really not our commonality. He loves God, he loves Jesus, it's genuine, he loves the church. That's our commonality. It's Christ. We don't have baptism unity. We don't have creed unity, but those aren't the ultimate uniters. It's Jesus, and the only way for peace to be realized is through union with Christ. So, then as a church, peace will be realized as we tear down the walls. Now, Christ has already torn down the walls, and our job uh, is simply don't reconstruct them. For instance, he's torn down the wall of classifying sin. Some sins are worse than others. Some sins are more acceptable than others. He tore down those walls. No, it's all sin. He tore down the walls of apathy and indifference. He tore down the walls of nationalism and militarism and personal animosities and political differences, jealousy, unforgiveness, unbending spirit. Christ broke down all those walls, and it's just our job not to put them back up like Israel did. Imagine I fall and break my arm. I want to make a comment about Casey falling and breaking his head, but anyway, I won't do that. Uh, I fall and break my arm, and my legs and my back and my good arm all help me up and, uh, to take care of the injured arm. My eyes uh, watch so where I can find a place to sit down, a- and then uh, when an ambulance comes, my legs carry me off to the ambulance to get me there. My arm and legs, all the rest of my body tries to help this injured arm. Now let's imagine that my other arm and uh, legs and eyes and all that all have personalities of their own, and they are selfish. So after I fall, my right arm shouts, Hey, you clumsy feet! What are you thinking? And the feast said, it wasn't our fault, it was the eye's fault. They didn't warn us about this ice on the ground. And they start blaming each other, and I'm laying there with a broken arm, and the rest of my body is doing, all they're doing is arguing, and the broken arm is not fixed. And that's a picture of some churches. So much fighting going on, you can't fix anything. And a Christ-filled life is one of interdependency. We have to remain dependent on Christ, first of all, of course, and living with one another with other believers and just as a physical body and the parts work together uh, interdependently with one another to accomplish the will of the brain so the members of Christ's body work together to accomplish the will of Christ. And let me say quickly, unity is not conformity. You don't have to be just like me. You don't have to agree with me. A body imagery assumes there's going to be different functions united in Christ, different personalities, different levels of maturity. In fact, people say, Paul said we need the weaker parts. We need the parts that people don't think we need. And not everyone's going to fit the same exact pattern. If we aim for conformity, we're going to contradict the unity and diversity that is supposed to be in Christ's church. So the main application of this text, peace is possible through Christ. Say that with me. Peace is possible with Christ, through Christ, sorry. Christ abolished the root causes of division and created a new humanity, the church. And we are to be a visible expression of that peace. Then in verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as a chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. He uses three metaphors to talk about this unity. You're fellow citizens. You're no longer strangers. You are now one nation under God. See, the United States is not one nation under God. The church is one nation under God. We are members of Christ, God's household. We're family, so we're not rivals, but there should be some mutual love and respect. And then third, we're a holy temple, a building that is jointly fit together, and Jesus is the foundation or the cornerstone. So, the church, we together have this common foundation, Jesus Christ and the apostles and prophets, and we have a common mission of taking Jesus Christ to the world, to the whole world, and that's our unity. And it doesn't matter what your political persuasion is. This is deeper. These Gentiles are not incorporated into a perfect society of flawless saints, but they are sinners who are growing and maturing. They're a community. They're not perfect, but they're a community. It's kind of like your home. Your home is not perfect, but there's community. And God expects us to live in harmony as far as we can and demonstrate reconciliation as far as we can. We have people in this church that I am so proud of because they have reconciled. We have seen marriages reconciled that at one time had no hope. None. I wouldn't have given you a spit for it. And they're together today and doing well. I've seen people reconcile with others in the church. I've seen people reconcile with me and I appreciate it it's beautiful but we still have some that are lonely we have some that have not forgiven we have some that have not been welcomed and people need connection an isolated Christian is always a weak Christian and you need people and people need you you need the church the church needs you So I want to ask, you know, what are some practical steps you can do to cultivate deeper relationships? Maybe identify a few people and plan a time together, you know, the coffee or lunch or something like, or maybe for morning prayer and accountability with them. Reach out to a friend you've lost regular contact might be another thing. Get deeper in your conversations. Improve your friendships with affirmation and encouragement. If you're one of those that feels isolated, you know, in this church, you don't feel like you've really connected, get into a group. Be present with others. One of my... uh, I just made this decision in the last 24 hours. One of the things I'm going to do for Lent is get off social media. I've never done that before. But the reason I'm doing it, I've heard about studies that talk about the positive effects of getting off social media. You have less depression, better relationships, less anger, Sleep better. I mean, there's a whole whole bunch of things that are better off. So I just want to ask you, what is one thing you can do to improve the peace, the unity, strengthen this church, the ties in this church? There's a town called Bruno, Nebraska, and they got notoriety when they moved a barn. They got 346 people to carry 55 pounds each, and they moved it. Now, oh, man, that's a good picture of the church. One person cannot move a barn, but a group of people can, a united group of people. One person cannot send a missionary to the Ukraine, but united as a group, we can. One person cannot reach the children and youth or community, but united as a group, together we can. One person cannot serve the needs of the elderly, but as a group, we can. One person cannot be a light to this community, not really, but a group can. And I want to challenge us to be a light to our community, united in Christ, together in Christ, not necessarily conforming, but uniting. Forget moving barns. Jesus said you can move mountains when you're connected to Him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this passage and these words of Paul that are so powerful. And I thank you for the church and I pray that we would be the kind of unifying light to our community. Thank you for the people that are here today and as we connect to one another, I pray that those connections will be deeper and stronger. Thank you so much for Jesus who binds us all together, who is the source and is the head and it's in his name we pray. Amen.